as we deepen in this capacity to consciously connect with our immediate experience. We are exploring what it means to give attention to life in a way that serves our well-being. The Buddha spoke of wise attention. And I'm struck when I reflect upon this how what he spoke of was not that there's a certain way you're supposed to pay attention or certain things you should pay attention to and other things you should not. That's not the basis of wise attention. Although there are, of course, supportive ways to pay attention and useful things to pay attention to. In fact, what wise attention is defined as is that way of paying attention in which greed, craving, aversion, hatred, and confusion, disconnection, do not arise, or having arisen, become less. And unwise or unskillful attention is described not as, again, what you should or shouldn't pay attention to, but the way of paying attention which non-greed, non-hatred, non-confusion and delusion are supported. or strengthened and wholesome qualities arise and develop such as generosity, kindness, equanimity. So it's useful to be aware of these primary tendencies which we've spoken of to notice that not that we judge or blame ourselves if they arise but that we understand they're arising in relationship to the way we pay attention. This is our attention is one of the conditioning factors for the arising of these forces, which are powerful, at times painful, clearly not contributing to our well-being. So just understanding a little bit about them to see that craving and desire in the unhealthy sense isn't so much that we're drawn towards things, at times we are sometimes in a wholesome way, but arises when we start to in some way imagine that the thing to which we are attracted has the capacity to provide us fulfillment, satisfaction, completion, somewhere to rest, or the basis of peace and happiness for us. And that's how we entangle ourselves with it, by giving it that authority, attributing it that capacity, which it cannot and does not have. Likewise with uh, aversion, resistance, fear, hatred, anger being expressions of this movement, it arises on a basis in which, of course there are things, it's appropriate to notice some things might be harmful, unskillful, unhelpful, and to actually see if we move away from things that might hurt our body, it's not inappropriate. Or that we move away, seek to move away from patterns of conditioned inner behavior that are not contributing or conducive to well-being. But aversion or 
in its unskillful, unhelpful expression is where at some level we believe that the presence of the thing we dislike or that we hate, or we're somewhere in between sometimes, the presence of this is somehow an absolute impediment to happiness, to well-being, to peace, to freedom. And so we see it's the flip side of where we believe something can give us this, and therefore greed attachment is what's taking on, going on. And when we believe it actually has the capacity in itself to obstruct this, it becomes aversion in its unskillful, unhelpful form. There's a view associated with the experience that gives it power it does not have. And with the uh, arising of confusion, I'll say this as the, the third way it happens for us, We actually are confused and uncertain as to whether this thing can give us happiness or not. But somehow we think we have to resolve that question to find out and spend a lot of time trying to figure that out. For anyone who recognizes that pattern, you'll recognize it. It's not how it happens for some of us, but for some of us, and I'm one of them, absolutely. I say this particularly because sometimes the third orientation is described as delusional, and they're all delusional. This is confusion when we pick up both a positive and a negative aspect together and vacillate or bounce between the two. The craving picks up a positive aspect, the aversion picks up a negative aspect. Confusion picks up them both at the same time and tries to resolve them and it can't. These are all painful conditions, neither better or worse than each other. None of them particularly helpful but really important to understand them. And particularly that underlying belief that this can give me satisfaction, this absolutely prevents me from getting satisfaction, or that I have to figure out which of those two this thing is going to do for me. When we develop the art of skillful attention, what it's inviting us to do is to turn away from focusing on that pleasant or that unpleasant, or that both or neither, neither pleasant or unpleasant, being neutral, as we've spoken about, but sometimes there's the sense of both, to turn away from that, to notice the nature and character of the experience itself. (coughs) To see this experience arises and passes, as all experience does. To contemplate this. To allow ourselves to sit with the reality that this experience, having arisen according to conditions, will pass. And as a result of that fundamental underlying truth that encompasses all all phenomenal experience. It has no capacity to provide us lasting satisfaction, because even if it's good, it won't be forever. It has no capacity to provide or to generate an ultimate obstruction to our well-being, our inner peace and freedom, because having arisen, it will pass. And there is no need to decide which of those two things it's going to do for us if we can't be sure, because in fact it can't do either of them. And that's supported by paying attention to the changing quality, the nature of the experience arising and passing. Just as the breath comes and goes, just as a sound arises and passes, just as a sensation appears and disappears. And it might reappear again somewhere very near, feeling very similar. We think it's the same thing. But generally it's not. It's moving, it's changing. Actually the very, you know, biology of our system and the the chemistry of our our system requires the neurons to recharge after they've given us a signal. 
And so they can't be doing the same thing. One goes and then another one nearby. We start to see, oh, that too is changing. Even the pain that appears to be continuing is not. Simply arising in a similar way nearby. And that too will change in the broader wave when that, gum, when that moves on. So in attending in this way to the changing nature of experience, the arising then of the attachment, the fixation of craving, aversion, confusion, begins to lessen, begins to drop away. Noting the mark of impermanence, anicca, of also of dukkha, of its incapacity to give us fulfillment. But equally its incapacity to preclude our fulfillment, satisfaction and peace. Experience does not have that power. That power is actually in the depth and fullness with which we inhabit the full dimensionality of our experience. The feeling, the knowing, and the simply being that it reveals, that is revealed through the intimate connection with each moment. So if we're unsure about these ideas of impermanence, anicca, incapacity to give satisfaction, or prevent it, dukkha, we have to look and see, is this so? Become interested in what's actually happening. Bringing a quality of investigation to the experience. Dhamma vichaya. Not assuming we already know all there is to know about what's happening right here. Brings a natural curiosity, a natural respectfulness into the quality of the attention we bring. And then noticing what we're picking up, what element or aspect we're picking up of the experience. If we're picking up the pleasant and highlighting this, we can notice how that easily gives rise to craving, desire. If we pick up the negative, likewise, aversion, resistance, discouragement, dis-ease. If we pick up them both, well, both of them. If we turn to the character of the experience, impermanent, incapable of giving lasting satisfaction, or preventing it, and we see equally the conditioned, lawful, and particular unfoldment as something which is simply happening, because it is. We see we're not making it happen. It doesn't define us. It's not happening to somebody else but nor is it definitive of what is most fundamentally true. While at the same time, it is part of the expression of that, which we can know, which we can meet. Looking in that way, it's naturally the case that our reactivity begins to lessen and the wholesome qualities of, of kindness, of friendliness, of relinquishment, of generosity, of calm, of peace, and of wisdom begin to deepen. And wise attention is that way of paying attention and that aspect of our experience to which we pay attention 
when we start to notice that these wholesome qualities are strengthened, they begin to arise, or the less useful and less wholesome ones begin to diminish or drop away. That's wise attention. So it's something we have to reflect on and evaluate as we go along. We can't just assume, oh, paying attention to this, my reactivity diminishes, therefore wise attention always means paying attention to this, whatever it is. Sometimes we have to just check and see what happens when I pay attention in this way. What happens if I pay attention in a different way? Sometimes with more focus, sometimes with more spaciousness. What happens if I pay attention to this aspect of the experience? Sometimes we want to move away from the particularity. Sometimes we want to focus in on it. When things are really intense, it's useful to bring a more spacious attentiveness. However, when we're kind of distracted or reactive, it's useful to be quite particular and specific. So when we're quite present and steady, we can allow the attention to be more open and fluid, including the wider range of experience we've spoken about, the body, its postural expression, its extension, its weightiness, the elemental qualities of earth, water, fire, air. We can pay attention to the movement of breathing. It has qualities of air and moisture primarily in the expression. And the body, the felt sense of whatever we notice in that, the body breathing the sounds coming and going, the pleasant, unpleasant, and neither pleasant, unpleasant qualities of the experience, the consciousness that resonates, that feels, that senses, chitta, that's like the framework in which we're experiencing, that has its own texture, that can be known. All these we can attend to when things feel more steady and open. When we're more distracted or reactive, just simplify it. Coming back to the body sitting, breathing, reconnecting with that simple and more unifying experience of just the rhythm and flow of this body, drawing in and releasing the oxygen, just as it does. And then maybe opening up a little. We may at times also just notice that as we settle into the quiet, and the simplicity of our experience, not just what we're noticing stands out, whether breath or body, whether vedana, feeling tones, whether states of mind. This or we notice these elements of the experience standing out. We also sometimes just start to notice the knowing of the experience too. The simple fact of it being revealed. We don't need to make something out of that, nor do we need to somehow move away from the noticing of that, just to notice. This conscious wakefulness unfolding moment by moment in relationship to experience, but not dependent upon the experience.
And so settling into your body very fully, giving yourself to being here. Just as you are, grounded on the earth, upright and yet at ease, alert and yet relaxed, finding a balance of focused precision of noticing the particulars of your experience and a spacious openness that allows whatever comes to come, allows whatever leaves to leave and that is present with a not an intellectual and analytical or sort of conceptual figuring out kind of intention but with a curiosity and an, and an interest to notice what's happening and to start to notice the connections between the way we attend and the effect of our attention and the forming of our experience. And if that doesn't make much sense to you, don't worry. Just let it be words. And come again into the body breathing. Just one breath at a time. Just one moment at a time.
So we're very much in the heart of our retreat now. Many good qualities that have been deepening, ripening, beginning to mature, can continue to do so with our continued and wholehearted engagement. One of the fields of experience that we encounter that it's useful to understand clearly, very much related to what we spoke about and introduced yesterday, the the citta and the quality or the nature, the feeling, tone, sense and experience of the citta, is what we call emotion. The flavor of emotion is essentially determined by the condition of the heart-mind. The Buddha didn't have a word for emotion, but it's useful to understand that it's a construct or a composite that includes the feeling, sense, and I'm meaning this not as in terms of Vedana, but in terms of happy, sad, expanded, contracted, warm, cool, that the, that the heart-mind has. It has also a story associated with it that tells us how we got to be this way, that usually tells us uh, why we got to be this way, not always correctly, but we think it does. That tends to suggest that if it's one we like, we better do something to keep it going, and we spend a lot of time trying to figure out how. And if it's one we don't like, we better figure out how to stop it and make sure it never happens again. And we tend to identify with the emotion in the sense of, it's me, and it's how I was, it's how I am, it's how I was, and it's how I will be. Which leads to excitement if it's a good one, and some degree of distress if it's a difficult or painful one. So one thing to understand is that emotions are a construct, and they move, they're in motion. Skillful attention is to see the pleasant or unpleasant quality with relationship to them, and the urge we have to either try and continue or stop their arising, depending whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. The tendency we have to identify them as being who or what we are, somehow definitive of us, when they're not. They're simply experiences arising to understand them as such. We could usefully reflect on the words of Khalil Gibran in the Prophet. He writes, in speaking of joy and sorrow, he says, If you could keep your heart in wonder at the daily miracle of your life, your sorrow would not seem less wondrous than your joy. And you would accept the seasons of your heart just as you have always accepted the seasons that pass over your fields. And you would watch with serenity through the winter of your grief. For me, these beautiful words speak very clearly to the natural, phenomenal nature of our emotional life, just as seasons on the land. There are times of summer and we enjoy it, but it fades out, it's not sustainable, into autumn or fall, 
and in the harshness of winter where we sometimes can only just bear to be there. It is from that that the fresh new growth of spring emerges. And from that fresh new growth flourishes into the blossoming and the fullness of summer, the luxuriance. We cannot live our life in the summer all the time. It doesn't work. And so we allow the seasons to move as they do. We know them for what they are. Aspects of our experience, powerful, important, needing to be understood and handled skillfully. And often the skill is the knowing of the what this flavor is, to be able to name it as sorrow, to be particular if it's envy or it's scratchiness, irritation, or if it's delight or exquisite pleasure, enjoyment. And to come into the body to feel and to be with the manifestation at the bodily level, not reacting to the pleasurable aspect by wanting it to continue and trying to figure out how to make that happen, not reacting to the unpleasant by trying to get rid of it and trying to figure out how to make that happen, but just experiencing it. And sometimes when things are sweet, we can allow ourselves to just touch them, to be intimate with them, knowing that they are not forever, we can nonetheless receive them fully. We don't need to hold on to them. Likewise with the difficult, scary or painful, we can release them, knowing that they are not forever. We do not need to make them go away. But sometimes it's useful not to think of these in terms of letting go, because we think if we let go, they should go away. Actually, we need to let them be and let ourselves be in their presence. So things move, and when we're touched by things, there's a way in which as we open more deeply, more intimately into both the flow and unfoldment of our experience and the immediacy, the sensitivity, the openness, and the, the clarity of simply being awake, we feel the ordinary things more alive. Sometimes as if they're shining or radiating something that resonates in our heart. And in such moments we can just stop and let that resonance in. So much nourishment is available from simple experience when our sensory system has been cleansed of its dullness and its overstuffedness with too much over-sugared experience. And we just start to taste the simple flavors. We can enjoy those moments. We don't need to hold on to them because every new moment offers something. We don't need to hold on to this one. But nor do we need to be shy of letting it in. And sometimes we might just want to pause in our walking, our standing, our sitting, and just allow the touch of life to deepen when it does. And not saying that's supposed to be happening, but if it does, it's okay. We can allow it. That's not indulging. 
that's not getting attached. If we see, the nature is still just for now. And so together with this continuing to practice deeply, we'd like to invite you to really give yourself as wholeheartedly as you can to the fullness of this day, to the fullness of every sitting, of every walking, of every standing, and in fact everything you do, which is equally worthy of your full and wholehearted attentiveness, presence, openness, and interest. There's a kind of way in which I was sort of sitting here thinking, hmm, it's a little bit like no more Mr. Nice Guy. It's like, really do this. Because you can. And coming, of course, to the sitting or the walking doesn't mean you have to do it in a particular way. But be here for it. There's a an expression, or there's basically the story of the Buddha and the words he spoke when he sat under the Bodhi tree in the night of his enlightenment, when he was still a very devoted but also struggling human being, not yet fully awakened. He sat down underneath the tree and he said, I will not move from this spot until I have realized what can be realized by human endeavor. He says, I will not move from this spot though my blood runs dry, though my bones turn to dust. I will not move from this spot until I have realized what can be realized by human endeavor. And he sat there. And when I say those words or when I hear those words or when I read those words, I get a shiver down my spine that's actually quite lovely because it speaks to me and I hope maybe it speaks to you of a wholehearted and passionate engagement for that which one is most deeply interested in. Even though we might not quite yet know what that is. But we know that we're interested. And when the Buddha says, I will not move, I'm not suggesting we stay physically unmoving. But it's the staying with the intention and the orientation towards presence and wakefulness in whatever we do. Knowing that if we're sitting here and the body's come to the, its limit of what it can do, we can move the body. That's part of our practice. And the walking and the standing and the activities of the day, noticing those moments when the urge arises in reaction to the thought or the experience of something pleasant or unpleasant that would pull us away or towards something other than our practice. And just pause. The urge and the experience in relationship to which that is arising are not forever and often pass if we just pause and breathe. Yes, I'd really like to have a cup of tea. Oh, okay, I would. In this moment it seems like a cup of tea because the thought of a cup of tea seems pleasant. But if I breathe, then maybe, actually I don't need a cup of tea. Or to lie on my bed for the next half hour. I can practice. And so let's practice this path of awakening together and see what we discover.
time now for some groups and also walking meditation. Some individual interviews will be posted later. Bearing in mind with the individual interviews, there are three of us and a hundred of you. It's a precious resource to use skillfully. We will, by the end of the retreat, have offered enough interviews so that every one of you could have had at least one interview. Now, some won't wish for one. Some may occasionally need a second. If that's so, it's okay. But bear that in mind. And particularly at this point, if you have had an interview, holding back to leave some space for those who haven't. And if it's really urgent or it feels desperate and you need to speak to us, you can write a note. But if it's more kind of casual, maybe hold the note as well and just see what's really needed here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.